Yes, that is a dinosaur instrument. I'm Christine Smith, and this is Musicians vs. the World. We're talking today about the Apple TV Plus show Prehistoric Planet and the instruments created to make this incredible score. The composers behind the score have come to talk with us about it today. Kara Talvi and Ange Rosman are both composers with Bleeding Fingers Music. Most recently, they collaborated on the score of Apple TV Plus's Prehistoric Planet alongside Hans Zimmer, which was narrated by David Attenborough and produced by John Favreau in conjunction with BBC Studios' Natural History Unit. Their score has received global acclaim, including a win for Best Original Score for a Documentary Series at the Hollywood Music in Media Awards, and a nomination for the 2022 Bulldog Television Broadcast Awards. The soundtrack of Prehistoric Planet has to date claimed over 80 million streams. And I'm so excited to chat with both of you today. So thank you both for being here and welcome to Musicians vs. the World. Thanks for having us. I'm really excited to talk with both of you. I've been watching Prehistoric Planet with my family these last few weeks, and we have just been so enthralled with everything, the visuals and especially the music and how the music has been fitting beautifully, beautifully with the project. The whole thing has just been kind of a feast for the (laughs) senses. So I'm so excited to have both of you here. So Kara, you are a classical pianist, correct? That's your background? Yeah, that's my background, but um, I wouldn't be able to play you anything on the piano (laughs) nowadays, (laughs) but that used to be what I was doing, yeah. Yeah. And then, Anja, you are a cellist originally. Is that your principal instrument? No, not really. I I started as a pianist as well, but I was very, very terrible. I I was so bad that mostly all of my piano teachers told me to stop. Um, No. Yes. uh, I started started cello when I was 18, uh, but I don't consider myself a pianist or a cellist or any real... um, instrument player. I do play a lot of things, but I play them all terribly. <laughs> We're both terrible musicians. <laughs> well, I've heard Kara play piano and she's actually still very, very good. So, <laughs> Well, I'm sure something that surprised me is the name of the actual instruments that you played in this um, in this project. I think they're called a raptor violin, hadrocello, fat rex, triceracord, Petrified Wood Xylophone. I love these names and I am so excited to hear about these instruments. Anja, let's let's talk with you. I know that you like to experiment with new instruments. How did you come about these types of new inventions? So um, we have to say that Prehistoric Planet was in production a couple of years before we came on board. Uh-huh. So me and Kara came on board I believe end of 2021 or 2020, 2020. Um, And we've had, we had these internal discussions between Kara, myself, Hans and Russell Emanuel, who was our score producer of how to evoke a sound of the past, a sound of 66 million years ago, um, this otherworldly aspect of it. We knew that we will have the BBC National Orchestra of Wales at our disposal for the recording session. So the orchestra, we knew that was that comfort zone for the audience. Everyone is familiar with the orchestra. Mm-hmm. Um, that all The orchestra also brings in the illusion, helps with the illusion that 
we are watching actual animals performing their daily tasks like in planet Earth, opposed right. to watching CGI. But we needed that extra layer. We needed that something, something more. So me and Kara went to a trip to Sedona to visit some dinosaur-related landmarks like the Petrified Forest National Park and the Meteor Crater National Park and the uh, Footprint. Um, I always mispronounce the name. It's Monioki Footprint uh, Dinosaur Reserve or Park. And we were searching for inspiration, per se. We realized, why don't we try making instruments out of the materials which paleontologists use to study dinosaurs. So fossils, rocks, um, I mean, fossils are basically dinosaur or whatever remains turned into solid rock. So yeah, then we had some bones lying around that we bought. We had some cello strings, some contact mics, and we just kind of put them together and see what kind of sounds they make. Uh, during our first prototypes, we were like, oh, wow, that's, that's something unique. So we went from there. Wow. So this was, you said 2021. So this was still kind of in the midst of COVID. Kara, did that cause any extra layer of difficulty to get all this together? Uh, no, actually, we were able to have our spotting sessions and every meeting with the directors and the production team via Zoom because they're in the UK anyway. So um, that didn't affect our workflow. And we were disappointed that we couldn't actually go to the recording session in Wales. That's right. something that we were looking forward to doing, but we ended up yeah. doing it via Zoom and we were mm -hmm. able to still um, communicate with the orchestra and the conductors and it was fine. Yeah. So it didn't slow down any production or make anything difficult. It was just a little less fun because we couldn't actually be there. You're right. And travel to Wales, that's kind of a fun perk of the job too. Yeah, but we went recently to London for our live show of oh, Prehistoric Planet 2, the Islands episode. Oh, wow. That must have been incredible. Yeah, that was really fun. And that's where we debuted the Triceratone, our newest <laughs> instrument, <laughs> live on stage. Can you explain what that is? That sounds fascinating. Anshay, do you want to explain what that is? So uh, the Triceratone, we made it for season two. Mm -hmm. So for season one, we have the Wait, let me let me go get it. It's right there. This is the first instrument, the oh raptor God. violin. <laughs> this is the second instrument, the raptor violin Mark II, which is an actual fossil. Oh my goodness. The third instrument, the hadrocello, which is similar to a raptor violin, but it's on a cello. So for our listeners who aren't seeing it, so you have a fossilized bone. Is that a violin string? Stretched across, or on, what? How on did you this put that one, together? it's a cello string. It's a cello string, and it has a petrified wood bridge. Oh my goodness! Um, and on the fossilized one, it's two. Um, it's two violin strings. I think it's a G string and an uh, and an A string, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and another piece of petrified wood as as the bridge. But the triceratone um, is our latest instrument, and. It's our biggest yet, 
and it's made out of a triceratops, well, nodoceratops skull replica. Oh, okay. And and a double base uh, neck with an ammonite crest and velociraptor claws as student pegs. Um, <laughs> so it's it's quite a spectacle to see. But yeah, it, it, it actually does, looks pretty amazing. It, it, <laughs> I'm just picturing it. It produces a very cool sound, but unfortunately we can't show it right now because it's still, it's somewhere between London and LA right now because it's traveling alone back from London. Okay, so walk me through how you came up with using raptor claws as tuning pegs. Like where, how on earth did that, was it like you did a drawing or? Yeah, they did this, um... What do you call it? It's almost like a mock-up of how... I mean, it looked absolutely ridiculous. Like, when I <laughs> when I saw this, I was like, there's no way this is going to work. That looks ridiculous. <laughs> and um, Hans has um, this guy called Chaz. Charles Lebrecht is his full name. And he's been building instruments for Hans for many years. And he lives right near the studio and... It's great to just bring him materials and say, we want to make this. And he really just makes it happen. Like anything you can imagine, he can build. So it's really cool to see it go from this really silly. Um, I was very pleasantly surprised at how it turned out. Yeah. Now, did you have an idea of a sound that you wanted out of that? Or was it like, let's no, just see what happens? The whole thing is, let's just see what happens. Because how do you know what that's going to sound like? Right. And that's a replica because I can't imagine you would be able to get your hands on a real. No, it's a replica. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A couple blocks from our studio there used to be a shop that sells fossils. And I remember they had a giant triceratops skull there for years. And I think they went out of business during COVID. And I was always thinking that was a missed opportunity. <laughs> so now you play these with a bow, right? Like that's, is that what you use to create the sound? You bow those strings? Yes. Okay. You okay, can so also, you, you can also pluck it. I mean, you can also pluck it. Okay. It's the cool thing about these instruments is that we are the world's best players of them. <laughs> well, no, you're not because somebody from the live show. Well, first of all, everybody at the live show was looking at that instrument. You know, they're playing, but they keep turning around like, what is that? So, <laughs> like nothing they've ever seen before, especially the bassists, because obviously they know it's a bass neck and they want to come play it. So some one of the players came by after the show to see if he could play it. And he was the best triceratone player. Yeah, so. That I heard. So he's the best and me and Kara are the second best Triceraton players in the world. Okay. <laughs> so now you were the ones that actually recorded that instrument for the soundtrack? Yes. Yes. Okay. So now how does, so you have this custom instrument, you, you receive it and you hear what it sounds like. How do you get from that point to this score, this amazing score, this otherworldly type of sound? What's the next step? The cool thing about the custom instruments is the unexpectability of them. No one knows how to play them. No one knows how they, how they will sound. And we often just went with the flow and started improvising and recording. 
uh, a good example is in season one, um, the Velociraptor scene. I might as well just pick it up. Uh, it's right there. This is our Fat Rex. And we got this instrument from Chaz right when we were doing the Velociraptor scene. So we started recording. And what you hear on the recording, uh, on the original soundtrack, is basically one of the first improvisation takes that we did. So then the instrument speaks to you and you kind of have to notice, oh, this is good or this is terrible. And you take what's good and go from there and it, 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 it acts as a inspirational tool to go forward. So we would often score scenes around the instruments uh, instead of writing the scene and then recording the weird stuff on top. Oh, I see. The weird weird so i mean we would do it both ways you know but a lot of times the cool things would happen where we'd just basically jam on these things and see what comes out hmm. so you would come together in the studio and kind of take turns improvising on these instruments and then going from there yeah i mean i am not a cellist or any type of strings player so this is really difficult for me I can't get much out of these instruments. So he's really, Anshe plays them more than I do. And for me, it's more of, I, I would direct him on what I would want him to play on my sequence, or I would just say improvise over this. And then I would pick and choose what parts of that recording I think are adding something to the cue. Okay. So it was a lot of um, back and forth between us. And Hans and Russell, which cues do we feel like really need to be elevated with this otherworldly stuff? Because there's also sequences in the show that are more traditional. Right. To contrast. Mm -hmm. And those would be scored in a more traditional type of way with the mock-ups and then approval and then recording with the orchestra. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. But every single cue does have a mock-up and a demo um, to be approved before it's actually brought to the stage to record right okay and and just if i can just add one thing kara um kara would often write cello lines or violin lines and she would come here and say oh can you record this on the raptor violin or the fat rex or triceratone and i looked at the sheet music and i was like wow this is really hard like i don't know if i'm <laughs> going to be able to play it and then i spent hours practicing that stuff so I think that made me be better on the instruments because Kara challenged me to play more difficult stuff. Oh. While when I recorded on my own, I, I always went with the route of uh, least resistance. So I would never, <laughs> you know, try to play anything really hard just because I said, oh, I can't play this. But, you know. Yeah, that's his, like, go-to. <laughs> if I present him something, he's out. Uh, I can't play that. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I guess we'll leave it as a cello then. And then he's like, no, let me just try. And then he's practicing it for hours. But his default response was, no, I can't play that. 
So now with each of these cues, so you two are are the bulk composers of this, and then Hans would be um, would kind of come in and, and give you feedback. Is that how that situation works, or was he really involved in the composing as well? Yeah, it's what what sets Bleeding Fingers apart from just being a freelancer is mm-hmm. the this capacity to collaborate and not only capacity but this uh kind of incubator hub per se yeah and having a mind like hans giving you feedback and working alongside him is not only awesome but it also makes us grow faster oh i would think so yeah so one thing that we always like to say is that let's say Kara's writing a cue or I'm writing a cue, we would always listen to each other's stuff. So mm-hmm. even though you wouldn't like press export, you know, Kara would come in and say, sit at the piano and I would be like, I can't figure out this melody. And she's like, try this, you know? And she would play something that would change everything for me. And I would spend five more hours on, you know, the initial spark idea that she provided. And then when we, would, when we would send it to Russell and Hans, it would still be marked as version one. They would give us notes and we would mark it like version two, version three. We would go back and forth sometimes for days. Mm-hmm. And when it goes to the clients, it's the, the queue, it's already such a flushed out idea, like not an individual person, but like four minds coming together. Yeah. Um, and we also have mm-hmm. all this great thematic material you know, the main theme by Hans and Andrew mm-hmm. um, that we got to incorporate through the whole score. And it's such a great theme. Mm-hmm. And there's actually on the season two soundtrack, there's a suite, the title track, the prehistoric planet suite. And that incorporates the main theme and all the other themes that we wrote for each episode. So that's really fun as well. So we get yeah. to kind of rearrange those themes and reharmonize them. That's one of my favorite parts. Oh yeah, and you get to make it work for each each individual yeah, section exactly. or episode or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so just that feeling of collaboration just helps you to grow and helps you to develop as a composer just by being around each other a little bit, right? Yeah. Well, it's not like usually composers are I mean, we're always locked in in our rooms. And as as a freelancer, you're locked in your room even more and you're even more isolated. Here you are, if I can say, forced to interact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just just makes you grow a lot, a lot, a lot faster. Yes, yeah. Well, I would think about, let's say you were a performer and you're just in the practice room for eight hours a day and then you perform solo, you're going to get to a certain level. But then once you start collaborating with other musicians, your musicianship just feeds off of each other and really just forces you to, like you said, it forces you to expand your creativity and your musicianship. That's that's incredible. I, I can say that I, I've grown so much because of Kara's music. Like, honestly, there's... there's that's so ridiculous. It's, it's not... It's true. It's... Um, like w- without her, the score would definitely not be the same. And all all the great themes apart from the main theme are all Kara's. For me, that was so freeing because I could use her themes in my cues or Hans's and Andrew's theme 
And our brains, mind and caras work differently when it comes to music. So if I had a great theme that she wrote and I was able to use it in, in a cue, it was so freeing for me because I could focus on all the other stuff. I didn't need to focus on writing a theme. Hmm. Um, and I could use her harmonic language opposed to my own. And then I would learn from her harmonic language because whenever I ask her, how did you do that? How did you do this chord or that chord or whatever? She's like, I don't, I don't know. I just like, I just play this on the piano and it sounds like this. <laughs> so when I got like her MIDI and I could, you know, look into it, then I would get a bit more perspective into her writing. Mm. Gotcha. So now you said when you have her themes, you can focus on the other stuff. What is the other stuff that you're talking about that you like to focus on? Um, recording the weird stuff, <laughs> recording, <laughs> recording the custom instruments badly, orchestration arrangements. Like if you, if I don't have to think about writing a melody, mm -hmm. then I can spend the time that I would be thinking about writing the perfect melody for a sauropod. I'd rather <laughs> spend that time Tuning a snare for seven hours. Yeah. <laughs> or something like that, yeah. He uh, hyper-focuses on the production stuff. And gotcha. it makes a, a really big difference, I think. Oh, That's, yeah. I don't... I mean, I spend time doing that stuff, but I my time is more focused on finding the right melody, like playing piano and finding a theme. And that's mm -hmm. my main focus, while his is more production... I take yeah. to heart what I learned from Conrad Pope, who's a, one of the best orchestrators in Hollywood and a great composer. And he once told me, go with your first bad idea. And that's what I always do. So the first, the, do first that. That, <laughs> the first thing that that I play on the piano, I was like, that's, that's it. I mean, not, not I'm exaggerating. It's not always like that. Um, but what Conrad says, go with your first bad idea, it translates to don't hyper-focus on trying to find the perfect melody or the perfect harmony. Because at okay. the end of the day, how do you know that your first initial idea is going to be any better or worse than your 10th or your 100? So a lot of newcomer composers write eight bars and then delete them and write eight bars and delete them and write eight bars and delete them. And you can go into this vicious cycle. Right. And when you're on a deadline, you don't have that luxury always to correct yourself and correct yourself. You just kind of have to go and see what happens. Yeah. yeah. And I think if you have the skills, the production skills and the programming skills, and you know how to make anything sound good, then it doesn't really matter. I think that's kind of his point, right, Conrad, that if you have that skill set, then any idea that you put out, even if it's not the perfect melody, you can make it sound really great and make it work if you know all the other stuff. Kara, let's keep with you. Do you want to explain a little bit what Bleeding Fingers is? Because we've talked about it a lot um, already, but let's just kind of give an overview of what it is. Yeah, so Bleeding Fingers is a composer collective. 
um, based in Santa Monica and California. And uh, it's a joint company between Russell Emanuel, Steve Kofsky, and Hans Zimmer. Um, I think it was developed in, what, 2014, Anjay? He was here before me, so... No, I think it was... Oh, yeah, no, you're right. I think yeah, around 2014. 2014, yeah. When I was in high school. And... <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's <laughs> yeah. We can cut that out. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's a, it's a composer collective. So there's many in-house composers. I think there's about, I don't know, 15 right now. And then they also have freelancers that don't work on campus, but they kind of can outsource some work to them. Um, and also the composers at Bleeding Fingers get to work with um, Extreme Music. So that's the sister company. Okay. Um, and that focuses more on library music. So oh, okay. we get to kind of, as a Bleeding Fingers composer, you have the privilege of working on these really great score to picture projects. And then when there's time we are allowed to focus on the extreme library and that's also really uh fruitful for us because library music there's a lot of back end in that area as well mm -hmm. and now how did you join Kara? upon graduating college i went to berkeley college of music um, when i graduated i moved out to la and i had a couple internships set up at different studios i was working at Ryan Shore's studio for a while. I worked at Bear McCreary's studio, Sparks and Shadows. And then eventually I was brought on as an assistant at Bleeding Fingers. And I was an assistant for about six to eight months, I think. And then I was promoted to junior composer, where you're still being mentored by one of the full-time composers here. And then I was eventually promoted to composer kind of shortly after that so yeah. I did the full on like climbing the ladder yeah, working thing. your way up yeah 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 now how about you Anjay what do you do I, I also studied at Berkeley College of Music but I did my Ooh. master's in Valencia okay um so the short story is that uh they took us to London Air Studios to record 54 piece orchestra I believe mm. um and coincidentally, Hans Zimmer was there recording Interstellar at the same time. So I briefly met, met Hans there. And then a few months later, I posted my recording on VI Control Forum. And he stumbled upon the recording. Um, and then after that, we had a few phone calls and we stayed in touch for a few years. And so that was 2014, 2017. I got rejected from the ASCAP film scoring workshop with Richard Bellis for the fourth time in a row. Oh. And that kind of annoyed me. Oh. Uh, so out of that, not, not, not annoyed, not, uh, I was disappointed. Let's put yes, it that way. Yes, yes. And out of that disappointment, I just basically wrote Hans if we can have a phone call. And he called me up a few minutes later, I believe. Wow. And I basically asked him if I can come work for him as an assistant or something. Um, but then they offered me the full-time position as, as composer at Bleeding Fingers. So Wow. Congratulations. That's amazing. 
I, I got very lucky. Like all of these chance meetings, but it also is um, great that you were able to keep in touch with him and have and develop that relationship over time. What I always think is in, in every career there, I guess there is some, uh, of course, some luck involved. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, at the end of the day, it comes down to your passion to your craft and the amount of time you put into your craft. And the more time you put into it and the more you put yourself out there, the more chances you have for luck to strike. Mm. That's that's how I think of it. Yeah. And, and mind you, you know, Kara, what she said, she, she explains it in such a, oh, and then this happened and that happened and this happened. And a few years later, I'm like two years later, I'm full-time composer after graduating two years ago. What set Kara apart from everyone else is that she just worked harder than everyone else. And she was oh. more passionate than everyone else. <laughs> and, you know, and those things shine through. Mm-hmm. It's very yeah. easy to be average. It's very, very hard to 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 get above average. Mm, yeah, well, one thing that I always tried to do, and I still follow this mindset, is that you kind of have to act like you are the person that you want to be. Mm. So when I was an assistant, I was already writing tracks, and I was acting as if I'm a composer here, you know? Like taking on all that responsibility and going the extra mile to set myself apart from everybody. And that's Mm -hmm. something that I always keep with me every day is that, you know, I'm I will always kind of present myself as that composer that I always wanted to be, even if I I don't actually feel that way yet. Do you know what I mean? Right. It's like um, presenting yourself as the person you want to become so that's that's always the mindset that I had when I was an assistant and junior composer and still now Mm -hmm. no that's very smart so now what do you think the benefits of working I mean we've already talked about the collaboration and working together and how that's really stretched you as a musician are there any other benefits to working in a composer collective rather than freelancing (laughs) no that's (laughs) it (laughs) um (laughs) Well, one thing that our boss, Russell Emanuel, also always says, and he's very right when he says it, that how fortunate we are that we don't need to wake up in the morning thinking what our next gig will be. Mm. Um, Yeah, we're in the very rare position of checking our email like, "Uh, did another project come in because I have to do this today and, (laughs) you know, I can't handle another thing right now. And that's like so rare. I'm sure. Because if we were freelance, it would be the complete opposite, you know? You, Did any yeah, work you'd be come chasing in? after the yeah, yeah, you'd be chasing so after the work. We're just so fortunate to have this amazing amount of work. And by the way, they're all great projects. Like there's rarely something that comes to us that we're not super excited about. Like, we're always excited about it because Russell and Bleeding Fingers have such a great relationship with so many different great production companies. Right. So we're very lucky. Well, who wouldn't be excited to play the Raptor violin and the (laughs) Triceracord? I mean, yeah, it's like a a great day job. (laughs) (laughs) Our, Our jobs, our jobs, sometimes we think, oh, God, like this is an actual profession. Like we play with bones and rocks and like make some music. It's 
it's yeah. uh, quite fascinating that we were able yeah. to do this as as our job. Mm. So now, do the two of you work together often, or is it you get different uh, collaborations for every project? Um, this is the only real one we did together. Mm-hmm. But but it did span four years almost. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Three. <laughs> yeah, it's a big one. So when when these projects come in. Um, does Russell say, okay, I want this composer and I want this composer working together and they just kind of assign them? Or do you read through them and say, oh, no, I want that one? Yeah, most of the time it comes directly from Russell or Hans or sometimes the production wants to work with a specific composer. So it's really project-based. But um, yeah, we usually we get put on something that Russell knows we're going to do our best work on mm-hmm. because... That's the beauty of having this collective is that some people are really good at one thing and, you know, we just happen to be have similar musical voice. So we're focused on the orchestra and, you know, sometimes hybrid, hybrid, modern, orchestral, that kind of thing. While someone else might be better at um, pop production. Mm -hmm. Now, do you work on multiple projects at a time or are these projects so big that you can only do one at a time? And then that's it. I I like to have one big Mm -hmm. one and one smaller (laughs) one. Okay. (laughs) Kara already has The Simpsons, which she just does weekly. Right. And then she had Prehistoric Planet. Kara has more projects at a time than anyone else. And she somehow manages to handle them. Well, I have a very nice team of people, too. How many hours a day do you usually work, Kara? Um, Probably like 12 on average. Yeah. But yeah, every day. day, we we work weekends, mostly, whatever we need to do to get it, the job done. It's not really possible in a five-day week. Is that the same for you, Andre? Um, yeah. We're, we're <laughs> in the studio mostly the same hours. Maybe I come in a bit later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my brain really starts working after 4 p.m. Really? So I would say that I, I get most of my work done between, like, uh, four and seven, eight p.m. But wow. I also I I have narcolepsy, so I'm I'm like sleepy all the time. So I have to really then find the window in the day where I can focus, and then when I focus, I hyper focus, and I get a lot done very fast. Gotcha. So it really I I can't if someone asks me how much I actually work work during the day, it's very hard to answer because I have no idea. Yeah, you just find that spurt and you go for it when it comes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. My goodness, I have learned so much from both of you. Um, Just to finish up, um, I guess, Kara, we'll start with you. I know you both have given many pearls of wisdom, but just to finish up, what is one last piece of advice you have for aspiring musicians or aspiring composers? I think the best advice to give is to be open to saying yes to many different projects and working with as many people as you can if you're just starting out because you never know where those connections are going to lead and to be a person that people want to be around and and want to work with that's the most important thing and then you know the music comes second because even if you're the best musician in the world if you're not a good collaborator or not fun to work with then nobody's going to care about how good your music is. Yeah. So that's my advice. That's great. Anjay, what about you? My advice would be that for young people that 
have this urge, this spark, and this burning like ember inside them that they want to write music, that they should pursue this burning ember and make it into a flame, no matter what basically other people tell them. Um, only recently I started realizing how many people in in my college and, and, and years before told me that I should quit. You know, that, that my music sucks, that I'm a terrible piano player, that I should quit. Oh my and, goodness. And I just, I just kept going and I never really, back then I really never really gave it a second thought. Only in the like last year or two I started thinking it, thinking back of how many times I've heard that. And, and then the second piece of advice that ties into the first piece of advice is, I knew that I was terrible and I knew that my music was terrible. But I had that, and I had, but I had that ember, and it that that ember was, you know, turning into a flame, and it was stronger than the flame of my colleagues. I can say a lot of the times, which made me work twice as much, be twice as much creative, put myself out there, even if I knew that I wasn't the best, because I just didn't care. I just wanted to write music, so. People, young people starting out, you have to nurture your flame. And if you see your colleague working hard, try working twice as hard as him or her. And then that will reciprocate in other ways because your colleague will see you and they will start working harder. And so it's kind of you're building this community around you of just like-minded people striving for some greatness and working together and yeah i'm going off the loop now but i hope i made my point yes you did excellent excellent advice from both of you um it has been such a pleasure to chat with both of you and thank you for sharing your instruments and your music and your advice with me and my listeners i just appreciate both of you so much so thank you so much for being here and talking with me thank you christine it was really nice talking to you yeah thank you so much Thank you for joining us today on the Musicians vs. the World podcast in my conversation with composers Kara Talvi and Anja Rosman. Throughout this episode, you've heard snippets of the Raptor Violin, the Fat Rex, and the Triceratone. A huge thank you to Kara and Anja for letting us share this music with you. And now that you've listened, I highly recommend that you go and watch the video version of this interview on our Musicians vs. the World YouTube channel, where you can watch these instruments in action while we talk about them. In the meantime, I really appreciate you listening to this conversation, and I hope that you have enjoyed it and will join us for more. You can watch Prehistoric Planet on Apple TV+, and you can find out more about Kara and Ange on their websites, caratalvi.com and orchestralmusic.com. You can also find out more about Bleeding Fingers Music at their website, bleedingfingersmusic.com. I will have links to everything we've talked about today on our website, frostedlens.com slash musicians versus the world. Musicians versus the World is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. This episode was produced by Russ Wilkes and was hosted and edited by me, Christine Smith. We appreciate the nice notes and messages we are getting from you, and we read every single one of them. If you'd like to reach out to us with suggestions, questions, or just to say hi, 
You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, or Facebook, or you can email us at info at Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.